Podcastable episode 190 for January 3rd, 2012. That's right, we're only a mere 10 episodes away from 200 people. This week's episode, A Window, Clear as a Mirror, by Ferret Steinmetz. Rated R. Contains effing language and, well, effing. That's how we roll in the sunlit lands, people, or so I'm told. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm basking in the glory of a new year. We've got some epic plans for you this coming year. I'm thrilled about the selection of stories we've slated for you, all the way up to our epic 200th episode and beyond. Stories by Podcastle favorites like Tim Pratt, Garth Nix, Daniel Abraham, Samantha Henderson, Elizabeth Baer, and more. Big stories by classic fantasy authors like Gene Wolfe, Stories by a few authors you haven't heard here before, but who you'll be thirsty to hear more afterward. It's going to be a good year, people. I asked last week what resolutions you all have made for the new year. I'm going to change it up a bit this year and ask you if you could wish for anything, however fantastical or probable or selfish, what would that wish be? Think about it for a minute. Is it to travel through space and time or some faraway land seeking adventure? To become a rock star or movie god? To make running Podcastle into a full-time gig? Guess which one I picked. Then I ended up asking some of our listeners on Twitter what they wanted and got some rad answers. Immortality, said one. My birthday every day of the year. Financial stability and the means to organize my life however I'd like. That might be the most fantastical of all if you ask me. Massively functional caramel-filled chocolate wings. A caged muse in Ritalin. <laughs> Thanks for the help, everyone. Some of those wishes obviously have drawbacks. Immortality, for example, has lots of awesome potential, at least for the first hundred years or so. But when everyone you know, not just the loves of your life, but your children and their children die, well, you get to be pretty lonely pretty fast. And how long would you be able to hold out before nibbling at those marvelous caramel-filled chocolate wings? Splat. Whatever your wish was, if it was granted to us, would we take it, knowing the cost? Knowing all we'd lose? With that in mind, Podcastle's very proud to present A Window, Clear as a Mirror, by Ferret Steinmetz, originally published in Shimmer. I'm sure many of you remember Ferret Steinmetz's story from last year, As Below, So Above. The story about a giant squid and his dad and the evil scientist who created them. Mr. Steinmetz is a graduate of the Clarion 2008 class. He's had stories of Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Giganotosaurus, and Redstone Science Fiction, among others. He lives in Cleveland with his wife, a well-worn copy of Rock Band, and a friendly ghost. I had the privilege of meeting Ferret and his lovely wife in San Diego at World Fantasy Con last year, and hearing him read his amazing science fiction story, Run, Bakri says, that originally appeared in Asimov's. It's not currently available to read or listen to online anywhere, but if you can find it, I highly recommend checking it out. You can find him online at theferret.livejournal.com. That's ferret with two T's and two R's. For this story, we asked Rish Outfield of the Dune Steve to come back and read to us because, well... 
I thought it was kind of a funny story, and the last time Rish read for us was about a year ago with the Christmas Mummy, and he knocked the funny out of the park. Then, Rish emailed me back and said he didn't find the story so much funny as heartbreaking, and when he sent in his recording, we had to slap a special sob filter on it, so we could cut out all the sniffles. Let it be known to all, Ferret Steinmetz made Rish Outfield cry like a grown man. So hold on to your wedding rings, and enjoy the story. A Window Clear as a Mirror by Ferret Steinmetz Malcolm Gabrowski returned from his job at the stamp factory to discover his wife had left him for a magic portal. He stared numbly at the linoleum floor of his apartment's walk-in kitchen, all scuffed up with hoof prints, the smell of lilacs gradually being overpowered by the mildewy stink of the paper plant next door. All that was left of eight years of marriage was a scribbled note on the back of the telephone bill. He'd crumpled the note in his fist without thinking. He smoothed it out against the refrigerator to read Julianne's last words again. Malcolm, remember when I said you could sleep with Dakota Jewel if she ever dropped by? I sure hope so. Because if you had the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sleep with the most beautiful movie star in the world, I'd want you to take it. And remember when you said that if I ever found a magic portal, I could go? Guess what? A magic portal opened. I tried to call you at work, but your boss said you were replacing a plate clamp assembly. And Thalmus, he's the unicorn, said our worlds would desynchronize before you got home anyway. You should see the sunlit lands. The air over the meadows is all fairy sparkly. Don't worry about me. Thalmus says there's an opening for a unicorn herder there, and that I'm practically a virgin by elf standards. Tell my mom I love her, and I guess you were right about us not being ready for kids. It'd sure be awkward telling our son that Mama ran off on a rainbow, am I right? Anywho, we have to go now. I hope you get that promotion. Sincerely, Julianne. P.S. There's lasagna in the oven. P.P.S. And a magic mirror in the bathroom. Thalma's brought it as a gift for me, but I won't need it where I'm going. J. Love you, XXOO. Malcolm slumped on the folding chair by the cheap, screw-together kitchen table, squeezing his temples to keep from crying. His back ached from leaning into the printing press to change the rollers. If he hadn't volunteered for overtime today, he'd be dancing in green glades. His dad had told him to forget lotteries and magic portals, count on a solid union paycheck and insurance. But bone cancer had eaten dad alive, and now Malcolm's wife was gone. The bare bulb hanging from the kitchen ceiling lit up every other room in the apartment. Malcolm noted that Julianne had run a fresh load of laundry before packing her suitcase. The dryer door left ajar. She'd packed her best lingerie, and the silken folds of an overlooked valentine red set of panties lay crumpled on the floor, left behind, just like him. He picked up the phone. But who did you call when your wife vanished to the sunlit lands? There was paperwork to be done, he was sure of it. But where did you begin? He stumbled into the bathroom, ran his hand along the counter. There, Nestled among an abandoned scatter of compacts and lipstick tubes was a silver hand mirror, its surface misted with steam from Julianne's last shower. Buy, it said, Julianne's handwriting traced in fog, and a little heart. Her wedding ring sat next to it. 
Malcolm's chest hitched. He stumbled out to the kitchen, got the lasagna out of the oven. He looked at his dinner solemnly, realizing this was the last thing she'd ever make for him, an overcooked tray of pasta. He snuffled wet tears onto Parmesan. Who? Who's the fairest one of all? He whispered hoarsely to the mirror, hoping to see Julianne cavorting with the unicorns. Instead, the mirror's surface lit up with a flash of bulbs that faded into a paparazzi close-up of Dakota Jewel, dressed in a low-cut emerald gown, eating a spinach salad with a silver fork. Of course, he thought, and felt his world collapse around him as the realization set in that his wife was gone, gone, gone. His co-workers took him out for beer and sympathy when they heard the news. Malcolm accepted because he didn't want to go home. His backyard was crawling with pudgy Renfair refugees clad in rabbit skins and clutching stamped metal swords, standing around with their heads cocked in hopes of hearing the hum of a reopened portal. He'd put his lasagna in the microwave for breakfast, and the breathy whirr of the revolving tray had almost caused a stampede. But the bar was funereal, clingingly awkward. His co-workers kept a discreet distance, as though magic portals were catching. Guilt made them creep up to the stool next to him, chugging Iron City in hand-wringing silence before spouting awful clichés. This could have happened to anyone, they offered. Really? he asked. Do you know anyone who it did happen to? He knew there wasn't. Malcolm had asked around, and there was no local support group for men with women who ran off with the wolves. He'd asked the cops about other magic portal cases in the area, but they'd been too busy looking around his apartment with eager nonchalance, as if the portal might have fallen behind a cupboard. No, they admitted. Then they glanced at the mirror in Malcolm's fist, before producing another corker. Still, at least you got a magic mirror out of it. You can see Dakota Jewel any time you want. Heck, you can even see her. It fogs up when she's in the shower, Malcolm said disconsolately. Oh, they said. Still, a People magazine would pay a fortune for it. Malcolm bristled. He wasn't going to sell it. It was the last thing his wife had left him. He didn't know why she'd left it behind. But he didn't know why she'd left him, either. Everyone else knew. They all agreed that if the magic portal came, you went. Malcolm stared into his beer, not sure whether he would have gone. Julianne and he had laughed together about what they'd do if the elves came, sure. But he'd always assumed she was joking. Hunting stags with diamond-tipped arrows seemed extravagant and cruel, and everyone knew that in the sunlit lands, diamonds were free, your clothing never needed washing, and your arrows always hit their target. Yet something about the idea of a world with no price tags, where everything was just beautiful by virtue of being in the lands, made him nervous. She'd always had her head in the clouds, though. She'd come home toting bags full of hobby materials they couldn't afford, all to make jewelry to sell on eBay, and for weeks afterwards the table would be cluttered with gold wires and polished opals that never quite got assembled. Whereas Malcolm didn't love his job maintaining the stamp presses, but the black smears of grease on his hands gave him the fierce pleasure of having accomplished something real. He realized he'd been happy here, and Julianne hadn't been happy at all. His wedding ring itched on his finger as he toyed with it, trying to make sense of things. Why had she left? Had he even known her? It didn't seem right, feeling so sorry about a wife you didn't know. 
he'd spent eight years rubbing up close against her without even leaving a mark. She'd left the mirror. Had that meant anything? She did things that made no sense sometimes. When he got back home and found that his landlord had raised the rent to 3000 a month, A portal finder special! His landlord cried as if the portal had brought Malcolm nothing but joy. Malcolm decided to quit his job and try to make sense of Julianne. The white horse trotting down the dirt paths of Sweetwater Commune had a railroad spike epoxied to its forehead. It looked unhappy. Telperian Galadriel, Malcolm's host, scowled at the makeshift unicorn as if it should have bettered itself by now, then brightened, playing the salesman once again. He'll be real, he assured Malcolm, once we attract the portal. Malcolm had never paid much attention to the newsletters from Sweetwater Commune, Mostly, he'd just wrinkled his nose at the cloying scent, since the Sweetwater Portal Summoners hand-sprayed every letter with patchouli. But Julianne never let him throw the calligraphied brochures away. Instead, she'd spread out the full-color centerfolds of Sweetwater's guilt-laden fest halls for Malcolm's perusal. He'd always said they looked nice, but she'd seemed disappointed. The memory of that disappointment had brought Malcolm to Iowa, hoping to figure out why Julianne had tried to talk him into moving here. Sweetwater was Julianne's secret dream. What had she hoped to find here? In person, the fest halls were spidery old barns dressed up for the prom. Would that have disappointed her? Telperion, about 60 pounds heavier than his photos made him out to be, was a balding man in his late 40s who was clearly never meant to have a beard, but had recklessly refused to give in to his genetics. His cheeks were snarls of scraggly wire hair with quarter-sized patches of pimpled skin peeking through. He wore his trademark pirate shirt freshly pressed. Telperion patrolled Sweetwater for portals, constantly looking around as though he expected to find an elf any moment. Usually, he just found one of his many girlfriends, who he greeted with a playful ass squeeze. They tittered and swept away, trailing ribbons. Malcolm decided he didn't like Telperion. He wondered how long it would have taken for Julianne to wind up as one of Telperion's concubines. Not that long, Telperion said conversationally. That's why they come here, for free beauty and free love. I'd have shared my bed with Julianne within the month. Malcolm felt naked. Can you? No, Telperion chuckled. Can't read minds. Not yet, anyway. He tapped his temple. But it's not hard to tell what you're thinking. And it wouldn't have been all bad had you come. You're comely, in a rough teamster sort of way. You'd have found someone soon enough. Still can, if you want. Someone who's been that close to the Fae? Ye gods, half the girls and boys here would blow you just in case Elvish Mead came spilling out. But Malcolm had gotten tangled up several sentences back. His stomach twisted at the thought of Telperion and Julianne. Stay here, Malcolm, Telperion encouraged. I need you with us. You and your magic mirror. Malcolm clutched the mirror defensively, feeling his wedding ring clack against the handle. He kept it next to him at all times. I'm not like Julianne, he said. That's why you're perfect, Telperion said, his eyes sparkling. If we act like the elves, it reduces the distinction between the two planes. The spaces between our worlds rubs thin. The goal here is to pay for nothing, to just create beauty, We have the world's finest collection of aura shapers. We raise hives of fireflies. We teach classes in elvish. 
Uh, I think the unicorn spoke English, Malcolm said. The point is, Malcolm, that if we can take an unbeliever and make you a fae, then that will be our key to the sunlit lands. So will you stay? I know your grief is great, lad, but nothing cleanses lost like a dunk in a swimming pool full of poon. Malcolm noticed the maidens lined up by the windows. They were all gauntly thin or doughily plump, and the directness in their gazes made him uncomfortable. It was as though they were mentally peeling off his denim jacket. In each of them, he saw a faint echo of Julianne. All right, he said, I'll stay. The Sweetwater Fest Halls felt like an endless morning after the party to Malcolm. Their feast tables were cluttered with abandoned wine cups and paper plates that never got fully cleared away. Their Gustav Klimt posters hung askew. Unshaven men in thrown-on robes and tousled post-sex hair drifted in at all hours to crash on the couch. Malcolm had nothing to do. Everyone waved him over to join in conversations where he had nothing to say. Create nothing but beauty, a man with a plastic tiara urged him. But Malcolm wasn't here for beauty. He was here to understand Julianne. Still, they taught him how to shape auras, or at least how to wriggle his hands convincingly around people's ribs. He tended the unhappy firefly hives, which winked at him like sad, banked embers smothered under burlap coverings. He painted crude pictures of green men on the sides of barns. But despite Sweetwater's applause, Malcolm's hunched green men looked amateurish and vaguely threatening, like furious Brussels sprouts. And when he was finished faking beauty for the day, he collapsed onto his cheap box spring bed and admired the mirror. Its filigreed ocean wave curls lapped around the smooth reflective oval like the frozen eye of a hurricane. That was beauty he couldn't deny. Julianne, he thought, would have liked his terrible paintings as much as the mirror. She had a knack for looking beyond the physical to see the intent of things. All Malcolm saw at Sweetwater was poor workmanship. Maybe Julianne had left the mirror to show him the beauty that lay underneath everything once he stripped away the shaky hands and cheap materials. That didn't feel right, though. He was in Corona the Aura Shaper's house, stapling decorative plastic ivy around her windows to make it look sunnier, when the draftiness of her windows got to him. He wandered off, which didn't perturb Corona, at Sweetwater, people often stopped in mid-task to go follow their muse and searched for a hammer. He returned with some scrap wood and carefully fitted a shim into the track. When he was finished, Corona drummed her fingers on the repaired windowsill uneasily. Malcolm, she said, it's sweet that you fixed that for me, but that's not beauty. It's just living. That makes it warmer in here for you, he said, which makes you happier. Isn't that beauty? It's the kind of thing he'd always wished he could have said to Julianne, but he never had the words before Sweetwater. Corona sighed a happy, Aww. They fucked like bunnies, of course. Soon enough, Malcolm was dating Corona, or at least what passed for dating at Sweetwater. Corona never asked him to patch holes in her roofs. She invited him under the pretense of some art project, which just happened to wander into home repair, and then usually, but not invariably, wandered into sex. Corona liked that Malcolm didn't talk much. She took his baffled silence for deep listening. 
She poured her heart out to him like Julianne had, talking for hours about her troubled childhood and the magic that made her special and how it had to be better somewhere, didn't it? It was like starting all over with Julianne, except his heart was broken. Corona didn't seem to care. Corona used ice and chocolate and rope to make love and laughed when he goggled at how kinky it all was. Was Julianne disappointed that he'd never drizzled her in chocolate? She was probably having a lot of wild sex in the sunlit lands. The thought didn't bother Malcolm, but he wanted the sex he was having now to bother her. At night, he looked in the mirror, asking for the fairest and hoping for Julianne. But it was always Dakota Jewel, usually with her makeup off, her wistful movie face replaced by an efficient scowl. Months passed. He wrapped Corona's pipes for winter. And slowly, Corona's appreciation vanished. She stopped inviting him over to weave daisy chains and just muttered, The toilet's running. He'd been so silent and so helpful that he'd just faded away, becoming an assumed thing like the air and the water and the sky. Just like Julianne. Telperion seemed sad to see him go. I'd rather you changed, of course, he said. But we must all find portals in our own places. As Malcolm packed up, he looked in the mirror one last time. Who's the fairest? he asked, looking at Dakota Jewel's stark, cold-creamed face as she dug into a grapefruit half. Surely there's someone more beautiful than her at this moment, he thought. And a cold shiver, he realized he'd overlooked the obvious for almost half a year. The mirror before him, he set out to find his wife. Dakota Jewel slept with a silver knife clutched in her hands. The tabloids were ablaze with stories of how beautiful Dakota loved to nick her famously pouty lips to lick blood across her husband's thighs. But one look, and Malcolm knew none of that was true. She slept with it sheathed, her perfect body tucked between the rumple of sheets on her heart-shaped bed, curled around it like a child hugging a teddy bear. Malcolm marveled at the way her face had relaxed into a crooked, girlish grin that had never been captured on film. Why shouldn't she be happy, Malcolm thought. All her dreams came true. He felt like a burglar standing on her terracotta tile floor, but he cleared his throat politely. <clears throat> Dakota Jewel rolled into a crouch, yanking the knife free, deadly as a leopard. How did you get here? she barked. What do you want? Silently, Malcolm held up the mirror. Its glimmering reflection showed the two of them, framed neatly in silver. Ah, oh, shit, Dakota said, lowering the knife. So you know. In the lambent glow of the full moon, Malcolm wondered how he'd ever missed it. Her unearthly emerald eyes, the milk-smooth skin, the sharply rounded tips of her ears. The question was never, who's the fairest, but who's the fairest? I'm not paying you, she said, but she hugged her legs to her chest, pulling her whole body in upon itself. I can see the headlines in your fucking tabloids. Dakota Jewel, sunlit star. Go ahead, make up your reasons why I fled the sunlit lands to come to the blossoming earth. After the shit you made up about my sex life, I've always wondered what it'd be like when the National Enquirer wrote my fantasy novel. But fuck them. Fuck you. She waved him away, dismissive as a queen. Go sell your story. I'm not here to tell your secret, Malcolm said. My wife left me. I was hoping you could help me find her. 
Dakota frowned in disbelief. But Malcolm fumbled for the mirror, held it out to her. Here, he said. Take it. She plucked the mirror from his hands with a cautious air of a postman accepting a letter bomb. Dakota fished a pack of cigarettes off the nightstand and lit up a Pall Mall, taking the time to look Malcolm over, and then smashed the mirror against the wall. She grunted in satisfaction as Malcolm gave no hint of protest, brushing glittering shards off the hem of her negligee. Your wife, she said. She went back? Two, technically. But yeah. She brushed off a space on the bed next to her and patted the silk covers. It felt like a dream, but Malcolm sat next to her, folding his hands demurely. Forget her, she said, exhaling a cloud of smoke. You guys aren't a good fit. There's no room for you there anyway. I didn't know what slot they needed to fill, but she's in it by now. Slot? Everyone does one thing there, she smiled wearily. There's only one greatest poet, one best warrior, one grandest architect. I was the most beautiful, of course. My mom used to be, but someone pricked her finger and so she died when I was born. The sunlit lands are convenient that way. Is that? Malcolm felt awkward, asking. Is that why you left? She hugged her knees again, but this time that sleepy grin washed over her face. As a child, I dreamed of the blossoming earth. When I found that portal, I couldn't leap through it fast enough. I landed in a garbage dump in Iowa, shocked. I'd never felt slime on my skin before. I didn't know how to work, either. First time someone showed me a broom, I tried to fly on it. I didn't know things needed to be cleaned. And until I saw the hollows of my ribs, I didn't know that you lost weight when you couldn't afford food. I scraped together enough money to come out to Hollywood. I stood in line with a hundred other girls, each prettier than me, and I recited lines to producers who didn't give a shit whether I won or lost. She searched his eyes for understanding. So when I got that first role, it meant something. Do you understand? Malcolm nodded. What she said had the quiet force of water running underneath the dock, true and unstoppable and omnipresent, yet somehow something people kept forgetting. When he agreed, her whole body relaxed. She took his hand in hers as if to reward him. I need to know, he said regretfully. She drew her hand away, massaging her wrist. Yeah, she said, you would. She took another drag on her cigarette. But she's going to be different there. And she wasn't in love with you, or it wouldn't have opened. Malcolm's chest ached when he heard the words, even though he'd figured that a long time ago. Still, he was grateful she'd said it. I know all of that, he said. Now, anyway, but... Dakota nodded and tapped the tip of her knife as though she were checking the sound on a microphone. She pulled away from him to draw sweeping arches in the air with her blade. The tip skittered off of something invisible with an audible scritch. She worked as carefully and quickly as a blindfolded surgeon. When she stepped away, white-hot lines sparkled and hissed like firework fuses, tracing the shape of a portal. So much for that, she said, wiping her damp palms against her silken pajamas. After every failed audition, every bad review, every meal of ramen fucking noodles, I clutched my subtle knife and thought, You can go back any time, Dakota. Just draw the damn door. She chuckled 
and opened her hand. The knife had been ground to a stump, the silver hilt smudged a tarnished black. She picked up the shattered mirror, then pushed them both into Malcolm's hands. Take em with you, she said quickly, looking troubled. The sunlit lands don't do broken. One step through that portal and they'll be better than new. They'll give you exactly what you want. He felt their fractured weight in his palms. Two magic gifts in the sunlit lands would surely lead him straight to Julianne. The mirror to show him the path, the knife to shield him from danger. He dropped them into a porcelain wastebasket. You broke them for a reason, he said. Let them stay that way. Dakota beamed. He thought about removing his wedding ring, just in case that might be magic there too. But he couldn't. She opened the portal for him. The hot scent of sun-warmed grass pushed away the chill of her air conditioners. Dakota placed a warm palm on his chest. Listen, she said. You go through that, you probably won't get back. I know. She chewed her lip. Okay, but if you do make it back, look me up, all right? Maybe we can get coffee. I'd like that, Malcolm said, then thought about his past conversations with Julianne. I even have permission. In the sunlit forests, each tree sprouted up naturally in a spot that generated the maximum feng shui. Their identical emerald leaves waved like tiny dancers in the wind. As Malcolm pulled up fist-sized opals from the soil, even and rich as coffee grounds, the bugs underneath scattered in complex and symmetrical geometric patterns, a kaleidoscope of green legs and fluttering wings. His body had transformed. A snapped pull belt on a printing press had once stripped the skin off his bicep, but that ribbon of keloid tissue had been erased. The wrinkles in his hands had been pressed away. When he looked into the perfect mirror of the rivers, his face was horrifyingly symmetrical, a flatteringly alien interpretation of his features that left him feeling disassociated from himself. Dakota had said that the sunlit lands were a small place, and they were. Walking aimlessly, he'd already met a knight on horseback, a girl transformed into a dragon, a greedy bear in search of berries. Each of the adventurers puffed up their chests and told him their tales. It was, it seemed, the local way of introducing themselves. They sat on stumps, studiously reciting their vanquished challenges with the air of a job applicant reading his resume. But their litanies of quests seemed sad. No sooner had they gotten their hands on the golden goblet then they found some other damn fool thing to run off after. There was never a moment's peace. They lived in grand castles, but they dreaded going home. Like sharks, like Julianne, they suffocated if they stayed in one place for too long. Malcolm knew the truth of it. Problems were things to be solved quickly and buried deep in the backyard, allowing you to concentrate on the sweet goodness of a padded chair and a cold beer. When they had finished telling their tale, they each looked him up and down, peering at his wedding band in attempts to figure out what magic he'd brought with him. Then they asked about his quest, and Malcolm felt strangely close-mouthed. You can't come here without a quest, the bear said, licking honey off its claws. Perhaps he did have a quest. He was chasing Julianne, trying to understand why she'd stopped loving him. But that was different. He'd crossed dimensions to find Julianne. And once she realized that he'd come all this way because he really cared for her, she'd understand who he was. And? And she would 
she would love him again. Malcolm began to weep. The bear folded its body around him in a warm, ursine hug, asking what troubled him so. He collapsed into the warm fur of the bear's embrace, swept away by an immense wave of sympathy as he realized that he'd been wrong. He'd always been wrong. He'd never understood a damned thing. All those years with Julianne, watching her push gold wire and polished stones around on the table, and he'd never once sat down with her to make jewelry. Do you need assistance, noble sir? The bear asked. I? I must find seven bushels of dewberries, but I can tarry long enough to help, if it serves. Malcolm sobbed once, feeling as though he'd coughed away the last of some virulent disease, then stood up. Though he was on his feet, he felt comfortably on his knees. I have no quest, he said. Let me help you. Letting go of his preconceptions meant letting go of his body. Malcolm abandoned both with ease. He remained human for as long as it took to help the bear clamber up the mountain, where they plucked glistening dewberries from the undersides of clouds. Malcolm shook his mane with satisfaction, and when he was done whinnying, he found himself as a stallion in a meadow. In no time at all, a prince appeared to ride Malcolm to the high stone walls of a church, arriving just in time to stop an unjust wedding. As the prince darted into the nave, Malcolm looked to the sky, silently asking what was next. His back gnarled obligingly, and his breasts withered as he became an arthritic old lady, bending over to find a squalling infant in the bushes. He spent years raising the infant to a fine, hale beauty who left him to go on adventures. He happily dwindled to a bird who flew beakfuls of water to a captive in a high tower, then sprouted hair to become a hermit who angrily demanded a vain woman's firstborn, then asked to become a scruff-bearded woodsman who chopped a path to the witch's home. The sunlit lands were cramped with starring roles. Malcolm was content to take every bit part, metamorphosing to guide everyone to their predestined happy ending. The only constant was his wedding ring looped around his claws, pierced through an ear, widened into a monocle. Of course, the bold gambler who caught the golden fish one day needed help outwitting the Nixie on the next. They each discarded yesterday's hard-won happiness in search of greater gains. The best Malcolm could gift them with were temporary respites, a curtain call between performances. The sunlit lands were not a miracle, but a convalescent center. He lost himself. Was he a salmon or a maiden, a crow or a lurching tree? None of it mattered. If Dakota could give up her knife for him, then he could give up himself for the world, doing penitence for the lost love of Julianne. Centuries passed. Minutes passed. They were all the same. Eventually, his forehead sprouted an alabaster horn with curves that would have made geometry teachers weep. But that horn was crushed in a manacle, the living pulp in the center, squeezed into a throbbing toothache, shoved straight through his brain. He fell to his four knees, shrieking. His skull was being stamped in a press. Malcolm felt a comforting hand on his flank. Contorted in agony, Malcolm wrenched his head up to see the Unicorn Queen, a woman with a beautiful tiara of interwoven golden wires studded with opals. Her features were serene, relaxed, confident, Julianne, he thought, realizing this was how she'd always seen herself, but the anguish stoppered his throat. You 
Poor thing, she said, reaching to her belt for a bejeweled knife, and he realized that of course she didn't recognize him. He was just another unicorn. She kissed his forehead, then cut through the piece of metal that gripped his horn. It fell to the ground, such a tiny thing, insignificant, the remains of his wedding ring, the smallest fetter. The unicorn queen peered at him, and as she seemed to recognize something familiar mapped across his equine features, her graceful movements faltered. She took a step back, clumsy as a foal. I don't know you, she asked. Do I? His heart broke a little, but in the best possible way. No, milady, he said, placing his hoof over the ruins of his wedding band. You never did. She breathed a sigh of relief. It smelled like roses. Thank the gods. I came from far away, you know, a blank place where every affection grew cold and no dream ever came true. She placed the tip of her finger against her lip as she reconsidered. Well, not but one, anyway. Julianne twirled in the meadow, her long dress streaming around her, and Malcolm had never seen her look more at peace. And welcome back. When we bought this story, Farrah told us one of the biggest arguments I ever had with my ex-fiance was about going to Mars. I said that if there was ever a chance that I could be a colonist on Mars, I would take it in a heartbeat, even if it meant never coming back to Earth. She got furious because that meant that I'd leave her behind. And didn't she mean anything to me? And of course she meant something to me, but I could never get her to understand. Later on when I was married, my wife and I made a joke that if the magical portal opened and we could go to fairyland, the other one should just go. We understood that some things you can't pass up, but I thought, well, how would I feel if I came home and found she'd gone through the portal and I was all gone? And so this story came flowing out. What surprised me was how personal it got. In the end, this turned into a very personal dissection of what my relationship with my ex-fiance was like. A kind of love letter and an apology to her all in one, summarizing everything about what was wrong with us and maybe why I shouldn't have been quite so eager to go to Mars. We weren't bad people, but we weren't the best people together. I think a lot of couples could say that. There's not really a lot I can add to that, Ferret, so I'll just say thanks, and I'm selfishly kind of glad that the portal didn't open up before you wrote this one and sent it in to us. Thanks, man. Feedback this week is for Tina Connolly's The God Death of Hala, read by Jen Rhodes. The story about a young child thief trying to survive in an interesting theocracy. A lot of people listened to it, but discussion on our forum was pretty minimal and seemed split right down the middle. Regardless of what people thought about the story, there was a lot of praise for Jen Rhodes' reading, which was nice to hear. I'm going to quote from Max today, who found himself divided on the story, saying, the world building was interesting and the story was long enough to fully flush out the world of a theocratic society where the one in charge is corrupt and abusing his power for his own personal gains, but all the characters seemed cut from the same cloth, all from privileged classes, all did stupid things and all did them for personal gain. I found it very hard to identify with any one of them, particularly with the protagonist who came off as a slightly hypocritical self-serving brat. 
All in all, despite various holes and complaints, I did enjoy the story. Thank you, Podcastle, for sharing another good one with me. Thank you, Max, and thanks to everyone else who took the time to comment on the story. I look forward to hearing what you all thought of this week's tale. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money helps us pay our authors and keep our castle high above the sunlit lands on our own personal quest of bringing you the best stories and fantasy week after week. And if you can't afford that, eh, no problem, but please tell a friend about us or write a review on iTunes. Thank you so much. And if you want to go above and beyond, write to an author you love and ask them to send in their stories for us to consider. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, I'd like to thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time when Daniel Abraham returns with our other favorite dynamic duo. Until then, here's hoping what you hope for is exactly what you're hoping for. See you in a week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Douglas Adams said, I may not have gone where I intended to go, but I think I have ended up where I needed to be.